We are here today to praise our Savior, and we're glad that you're here with us to worship together. One verse, um, actually a couple of verses that were kind of on our hearts this week as we were preparing uh, the music today, the worship time. First of all, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We'll be we thinking and singing about that today and hear about it in the, the message as well. And then at the end of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's, uh, let's rejoice together today as we stand and, and worship our God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God that we saw that uh, at least for a while we saw a weird yellow thing in the sky this morning. Um, uh, the, it, it's nice to see once in a while but um, good morning everybody. Um, I want to announce that right after uh, church and back by the piano back there any ladies that are interested in joining a choir for Mother's Day um, you would think that the men would do something for the women but anyway um, that's a whole different story. Uh, women that are uh, interested in doing a Mother's Day choir are going to meet back by the piano just briefly right after the service, okay? Um, also tonight, there's a family prayer night uh, from 6.30 to 7.30 uh, that will be set up back here. Uh, please join us for that if you possibly can. Um, also in a couple weeks on May 8th is the quarterly uh, mission offering, and we'll be doing that uh, again a couple weeks. And I just wanted to add personally that um, I heard my name mentioned a couple times last week in reference to the Easter egg hunt. I just want to shout out to everybody else, all the volunteers that helped. I had very little to do with it. It was really all good help from decorations to, um, to food to having people greet and people at the front desk and, and stuffing eggs the week before. And, and then um, having the number of volunteers we had outside placing eggs and making sure that that kids didn't walk in the water you know down there in the lowland and um, fantastic turnout so I, I'm very humbled and appreciative of of all the help and it wouldn't have gone um, without everybody showing up to help so with that um, I'm going to turn it over to Steve thanks Tom thanks praise team for leading us uh, into the Lord's presence and uh, Let's think about the last refrain, and my song shall ever be, shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful 
is my Savior's love for me. Uh, what a great thing to sing for eternity and to know for eternity how great our Savior's love for us is. Uh, Tom, I have a, a, a verse for you. I don't know the exact verse, but uh, Ecclesiastes 11 read it this morning, how important it is uh, for us to see the sun. And so, you know, if you've been hiding inside all day or, uh, you know, so don't live in a cave. That's my paraphrase for that verse. But uh, it's come outside and see the sun. God knew we needed to see the sun, uh, not just the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. So we need to see the sun. I'd invite you to, uh, to pray with me. I just really appreciate our praise team uh, leading us in, in songs that are so appropriate for the text before us this morning. Let's pray. Father. Uh, we come and we ask humbly that your spirit would work powerfully in each of our lives, that we would be able to hear and see and know the truth, not just for information in our heads, but Lord, so that our hearts and souls might be changed. I pray that you would work in each of us to draw us closer to yourself for your glory and the advancement of your cause, and for your praise, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever watched a TV show where they, they, they start out the TV show or the movie, and then it's like the next scene it says like three weeks earlier. What? Well, we're kind of doing that this morning, okay, sorry. Uh, but we're, uh, last week we talked about the resurrection, well now we're kind of like, Okay, uh, back a few hours earlier, okay, a few hours earlier, just before Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, as I, the, there's a, a show, a TV show, and I, I have seen it, I'm not recommending it, but it's NCIS uh, Washington, D.C., okay, and so it's a story about these naval investigators. Any Anytime a naval officer passes away or something happens to a naval officer, they have their own investigative team to see what happened. Well, Ducky is the, the, the medical examiner. He's the ME. He's the medical examiner. He's the forensic expert. And they call Ducky in to find out and determine the cause of death. So they want to know, they, they want to they find out what, what caused the death, and they try to get him in there to make a positive ID, first of all, on the person. Because if they know who the person is, then it helps them figure out how and why the person passed away. Well, this morning, as we consider the crucifixion of Jesus, it, it's, it's not the ID of the person that helps us understand the how and the why. It's the how and the why that helps us understand the identity of the person. Okay. It's the how and why of the, of the crucifixion that helps us understand who this was that died. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at in the crucifixion of Jesus, helps us determine that he is the Son of God. And that's a deliberate, in, intentional statement of, in the title, truly this is the Son of God. As we get down in the text, we're going to see that those at the foot of the cross said truly this was the Son of God. But we know theologically accurately that this is, not was, this is the Son of God. And we see that He is the Son of God who's died for our sins in order to bring us to God. And Peter said it in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Because apart from Him, 
we don't come to God. And so this morning as we open the text of Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look at verses 45 through 56. And three aspects of Jesus' death recorded there confirm him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that should, I think, makes a compelling argument at least, for us to receive him and live, because if we don't receive him and live, we reject him and we die. And for those who are among his children, we rejoice and give thanks and praise him and seek to serve him for what he's done for us. I'm going to read the text in Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 45. You can follow along with me. There is a Bible somewhere in one of the seats in front of you, underneath the seats in front of you. Or if you have your device or your Bible with you, that'd be great. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 45 and going through verse 56. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Oh, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus... When they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many of the women who were looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, the first thing that I see in the text is that there, uh, the first aspect of Jesus' death was there was this, the, the visceral realities of his death, our Lord's death. What are the, the gut-wrenching things that are present in the text uh, that prove that he did die? And there are these realities that we see that prove his identity and also declare to us the ministry, what it is he died for, why he died. And first of all, there's this darkness that the people felt. Last night, there were storms rolled through, and we have a motion light uh, out the back, uh, and it was so dark, and the wind was blowing. This is like at 7 o'clock at night, right? So it should be daylight. There should be light. Our light came on. There was this oppressive darkness that was over the earth. Well, here, this is an oppressive darkness that could be felt that covered uh, the the. Jerusalem area for sure, if not the whole world, and it was a supernatural darkness because we read in the text that it took place at noon, okay? When the sun's the highest in the sky, all right, then there was this uh, 
darkness that felt at noon, and it lasted until 3 p.m. So when you read in the text, it was from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That's from noon until 3 p.m. During the brightest time when the sun would shine, it was completely blackout. I remember uh, going through a solar eclipse. Uh, I was watching, and I didn't watch it, but I was there, you know. And it's kind of this eerie darkness, you know. The sun was shining, but it was like this eerie darkness. Here, it's like, no, there is, the darkness is there. And he, uh, Matthew's describing something ominous, okay. It's a sign, I think, a sign of divine judgment that, that's coming. Similar to the, the darkness in the, in the plagues in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 10 verse 22 and the judgment the darkness that precedes the judgments that are coming that are being described in the future and you can see these in Isaiah 13 and Joel 2 and Amos 5 and in the book of Revelation darkness covered the earth and it's, it's part of the judgment of God but it's not just a sign of judgment it's a show a show I think of of the the, the, the father's sorrow that's anticipating the heinous crime that's taking place and when his son will bear the weight of the sins of the world. And so the father is showing us the darkness and possibly even the, 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 the temporary triumph of sin over darkness, over light, but it's only temporary. Then there's the declaration Jesus made uh, and there are two of them. Okay, and these are things, twice we're told in the text, and you can see it in verse 46 and verse 50, twice it says, with a loud voice, Jesus cried out. Now, if you remember, last week we were talking about the crucifixion and how the, the physical realities of the crucifixion were that people usually died from asphyxiation because the pressure, the weight of their bodies down on the diaphragm kept them from breathing. And so here, after Jesus had been crucified and he was hanging on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice, it says in verse 46. He says he cried out with a loud voice. Now this was like something you wouldn't expect to respond, but it wasn't a loud voice uh, in response to his mockers. He's not going, oh, you guys are crazy people. No, it's in lament to his father. But it's a miraculous thing that he would cry out with a loud voice because most people just physically would not be able to do that. Watch this uh, documentary thing about a guy by the name of Nimsdai Perja. Uh, he was a, he's a mountain climber and he climbed uh, 14 of the highest mountains in the world, all of them over 8,000 meters, all of them over 24,000 feet. He and his team did it in a period of seven months, which is just, I mean, you know, for us, it's like, well, I don't know, that sounds like a long time to do all that, you know, but it, it, it's a remarkable feat uh, for them to have done it. What they found out, and they did a study on this guy, and they put him through this uh, simulation where he was riding a bicycle, but they were depriving him of oxygen to see how his body and how his blood oxygen level, oxygenation level was at a high altitude, and he had a high, high oxygen count when he was deprived of oxygen, which above 13,000 feet or above 18,000 feet, it's like you just really, you have to have oxygen tanks 
most people. And they had oxygen tanks. They had to take oxygen tanks with them. And so he, he was doing what was not normal. When Jesus was dying on the cross and he cried out with a loud voice, it's just not normal for this to happen. But what did he say? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which Matthew translates for us. Thank you, Matthew. So we don't have to learn Aramaic, Arabic, Aramaic and Hebrew. We can learn this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In, he, is, he is fulfilling the ultimate fulfillment of the psalmist in Psalm 22. The anguish that the psalmist felt is being fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Because you can see the same wording in Psalm 22, verse 1, as we see it here. And it wasn't a cry of confusion. It's not like uh, Jesus is really going, oh, what are you up to? It's more of anguish. I like what David Platt says. It's a cry of spiritual or physical agony. It's a cry of spiritual anguish. It's a cry of relational alienation. Psalm 22 is a fascinating passage, a, a messianic psalm that if you went to verses 14 and 16, 16, you'd see the agony, the physical agony that is described there, which was true and fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. And his Spiritual anguish is what's felt when he became sin and the sin of the world was weighted upon him as the sinless son of God. And I'm going to read or attempt to read uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 10 which actually I think gives us a little bit of a picture of the weight of uh, the sin that was felt by Jesus as he was the sin of mankind was placed upon him. It says for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So the weight of the sin of the world was placed on Jesus so we could be reconciled, made right with God. What does it mean to be reconciled? A reconciliation is there's a relationship of enmity and hostility that's changed and transferred into one of peace and goodwill. So how is it that we who are enemies of Christ become friends of, Christ, of God? It's through the blood of Jesus. We sang about it. You may not remember it, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says this. He that is God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That means our sin on him, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the anguish that he felt. He took the sin of the world upon himself. And we were able to be made righteous. And he suffered the wrath of God in the weight of the world's sin for hours on the cross. It wasn't just like a, well, you know, a little deal here. No, this was for hours as, it, as he hung on the cross. And even more devastating, I think, than the physical pain of Jesus suffered more devastating than the anguish the emotional anguish of carrying the weight of the world was the abandonment by his father Eli Eli lama sabachthani my God my God why have you forsaken me he was abandoned by his father as he lovingly and obediently died for us what does it mean to forsaken? It expresses the alienation, relational alienation. He was alienated from his friends. He was abandoned by his friends, right? They weren't there. Where were they? Gone. Oh, 
We're going to go with you to the end, Jesus. Uh, not so much. But that was partially the alienation I think he felt, the abandonment he felt. But I think the most important, the primary abandonment he felt was the abandonment of his father as the world's sins were placed on him. I, may, I think of the, the Welsh hymn, how deep the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Why would that happen? Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 uh, tells us that uh, your eyes are too pure, speaking of God, to, to look at evil and you cannot look at harm. At harm favorably. Why do you look favorably at those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? God will not stand in the way of righteousness. And that's the, the, the prophet's pleading with God. It seems like things are messed up, he's saying to the prophet. The prophet's saying, Jesus died as a substitute, sacrifice for the sins of the world. Uh, we have a little banner up here that says, He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. He endured the physical agony and embraced the spiritual anguish only to experience relational abandonment. I mean, agony, anguish, and abandonment. So we could be free. He did it for us. To pardon us. So we could be reconciled to God. He himself bore our sins. In his own body. On the cross. That we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds. We are healed. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, uh, I think it's going to be on, uh, I think we have this as a slide, if not, that's fine. For himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for also for the sins of the entire world. Propitiation, that's a 64 cent theological term, which means the atoning sacrifice. He took the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself, so that God's wrath against sin is appeased. Because God is holy and righteous, He cannot stand in the presence of sin. And so when there is sin, it must be punished. And Jesus took the punishment so that God's wrath against sin is taken care of. That's what it means for all our sin. I debated, I'm not sure whether I should, was going to say this, but yeah, for all our sin. For all time. It's gone taken care of but it's only appropriated this payment is only appropriated for those who believe but all who believe so that we can be free so that as we sang so that that we're weak and we're unwilling unable and in our in our sin in all of our mess we can be free we can be forgiven we can be restored into a right relationship with the God of the universe. That's what he did. Now the bystanders, when they heard him say this, some of them thought, well, he's calling for Elijah. Well, you can see that. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Well, it's Kena. But Eli is like, 
Yeah, well, because they think, well, he wasn't going to call out for God. Well, and the scribes and people taught that Elijah would come before the Messiah. We saw this back in chapter 17. You can see in Malachi chapter 4 that they believed that there was this, Elijah was coming. Well, so maybe he's calling for Elijah. But I think that they, they, they came and they brought this uh, sour wine. Like, that's really going to comfort him? I think they were mocking him even then. And then those who were mocking him with giving him a little something to drink were accompanied by those who were mocking him further by saying, well, let's just stick around and see if Elijah comes. But here's the deal. That was the last mockery, the final straw, the last bit that Jesus endured before the cross. And they brought this this drink, this sour wine, in fulfillment of Psalm 69. It was prophesied that he would be given this nasty drink and attempt. But the painful mockery was, was ended that preceded his death. See, these religious leaders, they, they were oblivious to what was happening. They didn't really get it, what was going on. They were more obsessed with their own ideas. And sometimes in the church of Christ, the religiously trained are focused more on our own ideals than on what's really going on. It seems to me that we miss sometimes the significance of Jesus' death and his payment for sin. We're we're, we're more focused on what do we have to do, you know? I just talked to somebody yesterday, officiated the the funeral of Izzy, and I talked to uh, somebody yesterday afterwards, and that person says, yeah, you know, it's just, I've been in a lot of different churches, it really doesn't, you know, it's kind of, most of the churches are all really kind of thinking about, you know, it's just basically they're, they're teaching the same thing. I know we have some differences and all this sort of stuff, and I'm kind of, I, I, maybe I was cowardly, maybe I was just being polite, I didn't, uh, I didn't bite on that by saying, I, I just said, yeah, you gotta, we got to be putting our faith in Jesus. I mean, I just spilled my beans here uh, in front of everybody, and that person was listening, and so it's like, you know, so God, sometimes there, there's these blinders that we have. And unless the Spirit of God pulls back the curtain and we see, we just don't see. And so some people in the church, religiously trained people, just like these people, who Jewish people, who were saying he's calling for Elijah. Pagans wouldn't know he's calling for Elijah. They wouldn't care if he's calling for Elijah. They don't know who Elijah is. But in the church of Jesus Christ, sometimes there are people here, some are online, some are in person, perhaps, and it's like, well, we're, we're just focused on doing the right things, which I'm not against, <laughs> okay? I'm not against doing the right things. Some of us are about being culturally sensitive uh, or wokeism. okay? Just got to do what everybody thinks is, is cool. Some of us are more concerned uh, about uh, following a personality. If that person is cool or they're hip or they have a really good presentation, then I'm, in, I'm down for that. Or some miraculous activity instead of Jesus and what he did on the cross. It was the second time Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Verse 50. And he said this, the text in Matthew just says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. I, I like, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, in John chapter 19, verse 30, and then also in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. We put those two together, and here's really what Jesus cried out with a loud voice. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
That's what he cried out. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he spoke of the triumph in the tragedy of the cross. And with his last breath. He said the cross was the completion, the, the finishment. The uh, finishment. Whoa, where did I get that word? It was the finishing work, the completion of his redemptive work of God's redemptive plan, the plan to bring, restore mankind into relationship with God himself, whereby Jesus paid the price to release fallen people from the curse of the law, which condemns us to death, separation from God. That's it. It is finished. The work is finished when he died. And Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, verse 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us. And I've talked to you about redeemed. It's the price to release. So if I own something and you pay me something, you redeem it. You, you pay the price for me to release it from my possession into your possession. When we are enslaved to sin, Christ paid the price to release us from slavery to sin into relationship with God. Redeem us from the curse of the law which is condemning us, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we... Okay, it's all good. Uh, Verse 13, I'm going to start over. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's important. He redeemed us from the curse. How did he redeem us from the curse that would condemn us? He became the curse for us. You see, in God's economy, nothing's free. It's free to me, but it, didn't, but it cost Jesus his life. Physical agony, spiritual anguish, relational abandonment is the price that was paid for our pardon. And we didn't pay it. Jesus did. He paid it for us. Christ died to provide eternal life for all who believe. John 3, 36. In these loud cries, two of them, Jesus attests to his intimacy with the Father. My God, my God. He attests and affirms the reality of his own identity as the Father's Son. He said Father, so he must be the Son, right? Father, Son, Okay. He affirms his own ministry and the agony he went through. He was forsaken. That's the ministry of Jesus. In a, in a nutshell, he was forsaken. Why? That's why he came to be forsaken for us. That's it. His dying breath, the songwriter says, has brought me life. I know that it is finished. His dying breath brought me life. Jesus gave up his life. He died so we could live. He lived so he could die. And he died so we could live. The death he permitted is the the final step in this first visceral reaction that we see. the, The death he permitted. Notice it says at the end of verse 50, and he yielded up his spirit. Don't miss it. Nobody took Jesus' life. He gave up his life. And 
John tells us in John 10, verse 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. Stop. I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No human being does that. No one has taken it away from me, even though those who crucified him are accountable. (laughs) But I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. The commandment I receive is from my Father. The people who are losing their lives in the Ukraine because of the war, their lives are taken from them. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. The Lamb of God gave up his life as a final sacrifice for sin to accomplish our redemption. There's a passage in uh, Titus, in Titus chapter 2, which I think captures the essence of it. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the end of verse 13 and part of verse 14. It begins, you know, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, uh, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 14. Who gave, that is Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? What reason? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. For me, he died. For me, he lives. Everlasting light and life he freely gives. For me, for you, he died. For me, for you, he lives. To redeem us. Because we couldn't redeem ourselves. We are destined for destruction and he did it for us. That's the visceral part. Now the visible results of the Lord's death is in verses 51 through 53. And there are several supernatural signs that support the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. The Savior of the world. And show the meaning of his sacrifice. First, he made access to the Father possible. Notice the text says that the veil, and and behold, verse 51, the veil of the temple, that is the heavy, thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the tabernacle, was torn from top to bottom. (laughs) Uh, So nobody kind of cut it with a knife at the bottom and then started to rip it. No, it came toward from top to bottom. This was the veil through which the high priest could pass only once a year to take blood sacrifice and to sprinkle it on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. And that would happen year by year by year because the sins of the people needed to be paid and covered every year until the final sacrifice was made. And there would be no more need for these ongoing sacrifices it symbolically covered the sins and had to be repeated in anticipation of the day when the one who would come for the final and full sacrifice which Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 was the son of God who sacrificed for once for all once for all it was made this sacrifice before the cross we were isolated insulated from God's presence 
But the death of Christ opened the door for all who would believe to come in to the very presence of God and have access to the, the throne of God Almighty. In Hebrews 4, you know, we, 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 we can come to find, obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need because we have a Father who loves us. On the cross, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed as the final sacrifice for sin so that undeserving <laughs> sinners destined for hell who trust in Christ can be received joyfully. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come on in. Come to the cross. This is Hebrews chapter 9. I don't have time to go into it, but Hebrews chapter 9, you can read verses 1 through 25, but in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 20, we read this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through his the veil, that is, through his flesh. When he died, the veil was rent and torn in two, and now we have access to the Father. He made awareness of his power personal, secondly. I mean, notice what happened. There, there was an earthquake, okay? So the earth shook, a miraculous earthquake. It was mentioned in verse 54, this miraculous earthquake, has, has several defining features. The earth shook. You ever been in an earthquake? Who's been in an earthquake? Anybody here been in an earthquake? Yeah, okay. Where were you at? California? Were you there in 1994? No? Yeah. Where were you? Michigan. Michigan? They don't have earthquakes in Michigan. You know, so, so some places, yeah, they have earthquakes. Okay, they have earthquakes in Michigan. I'm not, I'm not calling you a liar, Ann. Okay. They have earthquakes. In, I was in Indiana when I went through my first earthquake, and it was, it was more like kind of a wobbly thing. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, it's like, it just kind of wobbly. But my sister was in Burbank, California, in 1994, when the Northridge earthquake hit in 7.8, the ground was, was shaking, you know. This is a, a ground shaker, okay. There was a ground-shaking earthquake, and the rocks split, catastrophic, supernatural phenomenon. The rocks were splitting. And then the tombs opened again we're talking about rock tombs you know we're talking about rocks rolled in front of tombs we're talking about a massive moving that was so catastrophic that that happened and then it says uh, which uh, move into the fact that he made the appearance of the resurrected this is the third point he made appearance of the resurrected saints uh, something that was prominent so when the tombs shook it wasn't just that the tombs were open but the people actually came out of the tombs So we're not talking about just, uh, you know, well, it was kind of an odd incident in, in history. No, this was miraculous. Now, and, and the signs reached the climax. I think it's building towards this climax when the, the dead people, those dead saints, Old Testament people who believed in God, uh, were raised from the dead. So there was a little trickiness there because, you know, what, what actually happened? Uh, so the miracle, I think, affirms... Uh, his, his resurrection power, okay, at the death of Jesus. So this is when Jesus died, we see 
the power of his resurrection. And it argues for his identity. He's the son of God. Now, he passed from life to death so that we could pass from death to life. And the resurrection of these things, I think, proves it. Uh, now, here's the tricky part. So when did all this happen? Okay, so here's my take, okay? And I'm going to read this. That, that the bodies came out of the tombs immediately as a consequence of Christ's death so that the words after his resurrection, I think, describes when they entered Jerusalem and not and appeared to many, not when they came out of the tombs, I think is a reasonable understanding of it. So what I'm saying is, I think what happened was the tombs were shaken and the bodies came out, but they didn't appear in Jerusalem to many until after Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I may be wrong. It may be that it all happened after Jesus rose from the dead, but you know what? It doesn't really matter because it happened. <laughs> and when people saw, oh, that dude, you know, I remember, I remember I was at his funeral, uh, and he's walking around, and he's going, whoa. They got the point. And the point is this, the power of Christ to raise the dead. He is the king. He is the son. He is the one who, who brings resurrection life and makes it possible. And all of these people were simply Harbingers, kind of like announcing that, you know what, this Jesus dude really is the first, because they died again. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ did rise from the dead, the first fruits of those who believe, so that they became the kind of the, 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 the little neon sign saying, hey, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and now he becomes the first fruit of all who believe that one day we too if we trust in Christ, will rise from the dead. There's one more reality, and the last one is this, the, the viable responses to our Lord's death. These responses, I think, confirm who He is, but also testify to what He was about and why He came. And we see responses from two people. First of all, uh, and I'm going to label the responses and then talk about the people. In verse 54, you read this, Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus... When they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, <laughs> you imagine that? Like they're, they're down at the, the foot of the cross, and they're seeing Jesus up there, crying out to God. They've never seen that before. You know, no, no dude or gal that was crucified screaming out to God. And then they see the, 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 the experience the earthquake, and they see the darkness. They feel that oppression. They see all this stuff, and they're kind of going, whoa. And so we see here, I think, saving faith. Notice their fear. Who are we talking about here? Romans, soldiers, a centurion and some of his, his people. Now, I don't know for sure, but it may well have been that they were in the, among the Roman cohort that were mocking Jesus, clothing him with a robe and crowning him with thorns and beating him on the head and spitting on him and hitting him and mocking him. And then they might have been there when he was crucified, I think, probably for sure they were there when he was crucified. Were they the ones who were gambling for his clothes? I don't know. But they became very frightened, the text says, when they felt this ominous darkness and all this stuff. And it means terror. They were afraid. It's kind of like Peter, you know, when, uh, when uh, 
And the disciples, when they're out in the boat and Jesus comes walking on the water in the middle of the storm, whoa! They're scared. And their fear was real. But their fear turned to faith. Truly this was the Son of God. The events of the crucifixion moved them towards that profession, I believe. It stands in stark contrast to the people saying, oh, let's wait and see if Elijah comes helping. Maybe Elijah will show up. No, these people are like, whoa, we're scared, we're freaked out, and we believe that he was the Son of God. The Gentile, this is amazing, the Gentile Romans, Gentile centurion and Roman soldiers were the first post-crucifixion people to proclaim Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Divine Son. Think about that. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. It wasn't the rabbis. It wasn't even the followers of Jesus. It was these pagans and the centurions and their sin. That's the guy. He's the Son of God. The divine Son of God, fully man, fully God, and we believe. Now, when they said he was, uh, we see that their theology was a little bit amiss. They didn't have all the theology down exactly, but they had faith, and I think it's enough. It reflects an imperfect but genuine faith. But, like Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to them. It was the work of the God of the universe and His Spirit that opened their eyes to see the truth. Opened their blind eyes to see that Jesus is the Son of God. I like what Martin Luther says at this point. He says, the blood of Christ not only wakens dead bodies, but also sinners' souls. The blood of Christ wakens not only dead bodies, but sinners' souls. And so it is. Today, as it has been for eternity, then unless the Spirit of God works in our heart, drawing us to Himself, we are still dead in our sins. But God does work and draw us. And their response to the cross was faith. I just want to ask this morning, what is your response to the cross? Receive Jesus as the Son of God or reject Jesus? As a son. That's only two people, two choices that we have in the text. There's the people who are mocking him and the people who are receiving him. I hope you'll faithfully embrace the cross. And what a testimony here. The cross, the cross. I almost called it out this morning in the first service. I almost said, you know, I love to tell the story. To be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It's the cross, the cross, nothing but the cross, because the cross of Christ is our claim. And so we proclaim the cross, and we preach the cross, and we pray the cross, that sinners will come to Christ because of the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. It's true for everyone who's a Christian. 
It's there by faith we receive our sight. And then in contrast to what the disciples were manifesting at this point, we see in the women who were gathered there a steadfast faith. In the centurion and the, the guards, we see a saving faith. In the women, we see a steadfast faith. Fast faith. A group of many devoted women. And then he lists some of them there. And the other gospel accounts list even more. But they're all women. They had faithfully served the one they believed was the Messiah. And now they were deeply grieved. And they watched helplessly. But they trusted silently. And all except for John... uh, who we see uh, in the Gospel of John, he's at the foot of the cross, you know, at least he's the one mentioned there. Maybe the others were there, they're, not, they're just not mentioned, okay? They were shaken. But their presence is conspicuous, as is the disciples' absence. They were there to the end with Jesus hanging on the fact they had followed Jesus and they had a resolute faith. Uh, they administered in active faith, and now they were present in their steadfast faith. What a, what a testimony. What a testimony to the impact and the, and the ministry that anyone can have, especially these women in a culture where women were not valued and not esteemed. We have this testimony, and what a testimony to us that God uses anybody. He'll take anybody. He'll take Romans, and he'll take women. He'll take the weak, the strong. He'll take anybody, just so... I think it should be an encouragement to us how God uses and draws and will work with anyone. Scripture records how the despised Gentile soldiers and the marginalized women followers have a prominent place in the kingdom. That's encouraging to me, even though I'm not a Roman soldier or a woman, uh, uh, because I think they're not all-inclusive, but demonstrative, they're illustrative, they illustrate the fact that God just takes the least of these and welcomes them into his kingdom and uses them for his glory. And these same women we're going to see were not just there, but they were at his burial. And guess what? They were at his resurrection. They were there all the time, the personal presence and at and, had, it, had this been a hoax, these women would have been able to say, well, yeah, that's really not true, you know, really not true. But they didn't. They were strengthened by what they saw. They were emboldened by how they stepped out in faith, just like all the folks who've been to Haiti on our short-term mission teams, you know, they kind of go with fear and trepidation and they come back all juiced up about, hey, well, this is really a good thing because their faith exercised was validated by God's work in their hearts. Uh, in NCIS, Ducky will use uh, fingerprints and uh, DNA and uh, dental records to, to identify who's, who's the person. What we have to do here is, is look at the crucifixion of Jesus, the realities of his death and the results of his death and the reason for his death was to pay our price and the response to his death. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world, sent to die, to suffer our punishment, to die in our place, to pay the price for our sins, so that we who believe may live. That's the message of the cross. It's the marvel of the cross. 
religious leaders in the crowd, they rejected. The centurion and the guards, they believed. And the woman, they, women, they just stayed faithful. So where are you? When we take this bread and we drink this cup, we remember the Lord's death. And we don't remember it only, we proclaim it. We proclaim it. Why? Because there's power in the blood. Power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb who died to set us free. And in the Lamb we can be free and free indeed. And so all who know Jesus are welcome to partake of these elements which remind us of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed so that our sins would be atoned. But take a moment before you partake and before you get up out of your seat as our practice is and make your way up and please use the tongs to take the bread and you can take the bread back to your seat if you want and the cup or not, you can take it up here. But take your time to examine your heart. And if you don't know Jesus, put your faith or your trust in Jesus. That's my invitation and my challenge because you either reject Jesus and, and die or you receive Jesus and live. And if you know Jesus, then rejoice in Jesus and give thanks to Jesus and commit to live for him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the cross of Christ. And I pray that it will be my song forever. Forever. My song will be wonderful merciful Savior. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus' name.